Well, we're continuing, as Abby said, in this series on the Minor Prophets. This is week 11, so we're getting close to the end. We're going to go through all 12. This is week 11, so we've got one more week to go. And this week, as as Abby said, we're looking at the prophet Amos. I've so loved this whole series. I've loved digging into this specific book, this specific prophet, because uh, Amos was a surprising prophet who had a really surprising message to a people that weren't ready for it. But the message is really applicable to us today, as Abby said. And so uh, even though it's 2,800 years old, we need this message. And if you're new with us and you haven't, you haven't been kind of with us as we've walked through this minor prophet series, you may, uh, you may not even know what that word means. What's that word mean? I've heard the word prophet. I don't really know what it means. But being a prophet means that Amos was sent by God to deliver a message to God's people to wake them up. When my daughter was four or five years old, she developed this really effective way of waking us up in the morning. Sometime between the hour of 4 and 7 a.m., which is not a welcome time, by the way. We didn't ask for that. That wasn't our ideal. Uh, She would sneak into our room, or at least I presume that she would sneak into our room because I never heard her coming into my room. Uh, Maybe it was like ninja training or something. But anyway, she would uh, just kind of pop up and hit us in the head with toys until we would wake up. That was her strategy strategy. Uh, And that sounds like a joke, but it's not. That's just what she did. Uh, And so uh, Abby and I developed this uh, kind of robust prayer life during this season uh, because at night we'd be like, uh, God, please just let her choose the stuffed animal tomorrow and not the Barbie doll. Because I don't know if you've been hit in the head with a Barbie doll, but that rigid plastic is not fun in an eyeball when you're asleep. And so we'd be like, please, no, no, no Barbie dolls. So that strategy that, that my daughter used, was it, was it welcome? Were we thankful for it? Nope, not even a little bit. But was it effective? Yes. That's essentially the job of the prophet, to, to go to God's people and hit them over the head until they wake up. And sometimes, once in a while, it's like a stuffed animal uh, kind of gently waking you up. But more often than not, it's like a Barbie to the face. And that's what we have in Amos, and that's what we've had through a lot of this series, kind of a Barbie doll to the face. But the book of Amos is a collection of sermons and poems and dreams that Amos has and delivers to Israel to wake them up. And it's a message we need today. Simply put, that message from Amos, if you distilled it all the way down, is this. Seeking the Lord should make a difference. But does it? Does seeking the Lord actually make a difference? A little context would be helpful uh, here. Uh, This is where Amos sits in context to the other minor prophets that we've been looking at. There he is, about 760 B.C., and a lot is going on in the world in 760 B.C. Jeroboam II is on the throne of the kingdom of Israel. About 150 years prior to this, you had the split of the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. But in the northern kingdom, Jeroboam is on the throne. And he had built considerable wealth for for, for Israel. They'd won a bunch of battles. And so uh, things were booming in Israel. Yet, even with all of that, they weren't the world power of the day. The world power of the day were the Assyrians. The Syrians uh, had this mighty uh, military, and that should have led to fear for Jeroboam and Israel because what could have happened very easily is the Assyrians could have come down from the north and just wiped out Israel whenever it wanted to. But at the moment, at 760 B.C., the Assyrians were off in Asia Minor with other conquests. They were preoccupied, as it were. So Jeroboam and Israel, in a sense, were free at that time to expand the territory 
of Israel to develop the economy with trade and with commerce, Israel was booming. And the result was this growing upper class. These are really good things. Things were going great in Israel. So why would God send a prophet there at that time? Well, what was good, this kind of boom that was happening, started to stand in the way of doing good. See, as a result of their safety and prosperity that they were experiencing, it had this ugly side. In their safety and in their prosperity, it led people with freedom to worship whatever they wanted to, worship themselves if they wanted to, put themselves at the center, worship all kinds of things. They didn't trust in the one true God because they didn't feel like they needed to. And in their prosperity, they were living with a sense of indifference to the plight of the poor. And so if you dropped into Israel in 760 B.C., you would find yourself in the middle of a culture that would have these elaborate religious practices and even faithful participation. People would come from all over to these ceremonies and festivals, and they would worship God. But there was very little of taking the character of God that they were, that they were worshiping out into the world outside of those festivals and outside of those religious practices. And so culturally what was happening, though they were gathering in worship, the rich were becoming richer, the poor were becoming poor, the gap was growing, the powerless were being exploited, and they were finding no justice. See, prosperity, which is not a sin, was leading to indifference, which is a sin. There's something I realized about myself uh, recently, a couple years ago. Maybe you're similar, maybe you're not. I think it has to do with, with, uh, with getting older or something, but, uh, but I've realized that I love my front yard in an unhealthy way. Like, I really, really enjoy my front yard. If you happen by my house on a Saturday morning, you might find me standing in front of the front door with a cup of coffee in my hand just looking at grass. It's like, yep, there's a shrub. Awesome. You know, and it just, I would just spend time, just, I'm just out there. Uh, and, and so because I get, I love it so much and I, and I get so much joy from it, it's the first thing that people see, it's the first thing I see when I come up, I spend a lot of time taking care of it. And so I mow it and I edge it and I get the bag of the weed and feed stuff and I do it exactly like it tells me to do it because I don't want any weeds or anything like that. But because I spend so much time on the front yard, because it's what people see. The side yard, totally different story. My side yard is uh, kind of weedy, and the irrigation doesn't kind of really work as well, so the plants are all kind of meh. And then uh, the, I've got this fence that, that really needed to be replaced when, when we moved in, uh, but I was like, yeah, it's kind of fine. It's a side yard, no one sees it, and it fell down in the last hurricane. Uh, but don't worry, I just took my 12-year-old son outside and just had him like, just hold up a panel, and I just put screws in it. I'm like, it's, it's, it's gonna hang in there, it'll be okay. It's only fallen down twice since. Uh, and so, uh, but it's a side yard. So, so what's the, they look different because, because I give them different levels of attention, right? And so uh, if you were to come up to my front yard right now, you'd see this beautiful weedless green carpet and a beautiful oak tree and then a palm, a palm tree by the front door. And then there's this brick walkway that walks you up and around. There's this little circle with a with a, a, a rose bush in the center of it that's blooming all the time. We planted for Abby a couple years ago. It's, it's perfect. And then on the side, it's just the right? Because they're different. And don't get me started if someone actually compliments my front yard. Then I'm incorrigible, right? So, like, I was out the other day, and I was, you know, doing whatever I was doing, probably, like, you know, trimming grass with scissors or whatever I was doing. Uh, and uh, this neighbor I don't know well comes by, and he's like, yard's looking good. And I was like, yes, it does. Thank you, sir. I promise you, for a week I was impenetrable. You could have told me any manner of terrible thing about myself, and I'd be like, yeah, but have you seen my yard, right? Um, so they look different because they get different levels of attention. 
God isn't pleased if we look good in the most visible places, but neglect the things that can go unseen. Looking at Amos begs this question, have we treated caring for the vulnerable, something that can, and Jesus actually said should at times go unseen, but have we treated that as some untended spiritual side yard in our lives? Are we, his people, too busy with what other people can see that we have, maybe not on purpose, but have we neglected what people oftentimes don't notice? See, some of God's people were wealthy, faithful in religious practice, the front yard, the most visible places, they look so good, but in their wealth and in their practices, it led them to ignoring or even exploiting the poor. They would underpay uh, the poor for their work or enslave them altogether. And when someone raised their hand and said, hey, it's not right how you're treating us, they would receive no justice in the courts. They felt great and they looked great, but others were paying the price for that feeling. And so for you, maybe you showed up uh, this morning and you would say generally things are good, maybe even surprisingly good for you. You know, you hear a lot of bad news in the world, but if you really assess what's going on in your life, like things are pretty good. My job is going well. I feel like I'm compensated well for the work that I do and, and I see value in my work and it's afforded me an opportunity to have reliable transportation and a, and a safe home for my family to be in. My, my Marriage is in a, a great place right now. My kids are, you know, m moderately appropriate social creatures, and they look people in the eye and they shake hands. It's like, that's going pretty well. Or if you're a student, maybe uh, you, your classes are actually engaging, and your professors and your teachers are actually uh, really helpful to you, and you can kind of see the path between where you are and where you want to get to and how these classes are actually helpful in that. Maybe you come here regularly and you love it, you get filled up, and that's a really good thing. And all of this is giving you space in your life to dream about what good things could happen in the future. But there's a threat that comes with all of that, the same threat that Israel had in front of them. It's taking all of that good and saying, I'm so blessed. I'm so thankful for this. God, thank you for, for all of this. Uh, let's just keep it right here. Uh, thank you, God, and stop. And our, and our lives and our, and our prayer lives start to turn inward rather than giving any space to really look outwards. And here's a check. You can know if you're maybe falling victim to this threat a little bit. If uh, maybe you're, you're looking at your phone and you're, you're on the news or Facebook or whatever and you see that thing about those people that were treated that way and you go, nope, that's got to be somebody else's problem. I'm all full. Or if you're at coffee with a friend, they're like, hey, did you, have you heard anything about what's, What's going on with those people who stayed over? You're like, no. And honestly, I'd rather talk about something else. I'm all full right now. See, there are things in our lives that can garner our attention and our affection, and they can be really good things. But they might not leave space for other important things to get the attention that they deserve. So the threat is that what is good in our lives starts to stand in for seeking the Lord, and we just seek the good thing. We don't seek the Lord. So it stands in for seeking the Lord, and it stands in the way of us doing good with our lives. And what happens then? We become thankful self-preservationists rather than people on mission with God. And so the 2,800-year-old call of Amos all the way up into here today right now is this. Don't let what is good keep you from doing good. Because when this happens, it never pleases God. There should never 
be untended social or spiritual side yards in the lives of those that are seeking God's kingdom. And because that was happening in 760 B.C., God decides to send a messenger named Amos to tell the people there's going to be grave consequences for these actions, for this indifference. And God sends Amos to a really interesting place. He sends him to Bethel. Now, Bethel was, uh, was a place where one of the fathers of Israel, Jacob, had a dream. You can read about it in Genesis 28. In this dream, he sees a, a ladder connecting the, the heavens and the earth. And he sees angels ascending and descending. And we can interpret that dream to say, oh, yeah, I get it. This is God saying he wants us to be with him. He wants us to join him. He's creating a, a way for us. But that's actually not a great interpretation of what's happening in that dream. The dream actually is about God wanting to descend to us, come to us, dwell with us, have his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus would put it. And so this place where Jacob had this dream is called Bethel, which in Hebrew means God is here. And where God shows up, it's supposed to make a difference. But by the time Amos is sent to this place, Bethel, it's still a place of worship. People still gather there. They still talk about the character of God there. Someone would even pilgrimage from, from, pilgrimage from long distances away to come to Bethel. But the meaning behind the name had all but been forgotten because it was no longer a place or a people that was better. It was different because God was there. It was just people going through the motions. People weren't being changed. They were gathering in worship, but they weren't being changed. And because the people of God weren't being changed, other of the people of God were suffering. And so if you're God and this is happening, which, by the way, you're not. You're not God. Uh, for some of us, this is the most important part of the message today. Uh, if you're God, which you are not, but if you were, who would you send? Who would you send to deliver this message of injustice, this message that indifference has grave consequences? Who would you send? Maybe someone who's wealthy and powerful, Right? They could gain audience with, with the other wealthy and powerful, this growing upper class in Israel. That'd be a good strategy. That'd make God a good strategist. Maybe you would send someone who uh, had a really firm grasp on the, on the geopolitical climate in Israel, really understood the, the local setting and, and the communities and, and the thought processes of, of the leaders of those communities. That'd be a good strategy. That would make God a good strategist. There's a third option. You could send a rural farmer from another place who didn't really have any connections to the north uh, and didn't really have any political power or availability to like kind of talk to people in power. You could do that. It's a terrible option, right? You would, you, you would say, well, no, I won't pick the third option. That's, that's ridiculous. But guess what? That's exactly what God does. It's exactly what he does. God seems to have a sense of humor, and he seems to, to love to use uh, ordinary people and surprising people to do extraordinary things. There's hope in there for us, by the way, that God loves to use ordinary, surprising people to do extraordinary things. So he sends Amos. Amos wasn't a politician. He wasn't a religious authority. He wasn't even a northerner. It says in chapter 7, verse 14 of Amos that he was a shepherd. He owned a fig orchard in Tekoa, about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, which actually sounds like a pretty nice life. Uh, and you can see there's Bethel. So we're right near, uh, kind of split the difference between Jerusalem. You've got the distance between uh, Bethel and, and Tekoa there. And so God goes to Amos and he says, hey, I know you're busy. I, I know you own your own business and functionally this has nothing to do with you. 
And I know you could go about your relatively quiet life in peace. I know you could do that, but God says, I need you. I need you to deliver a message to your extended family up north. Go to a place where they worship all kinds of things, even themselves. They worship all kinds of things, but they aren't changed in worship. Go to Bethel and remind them this. Remind them they're my chosen people. Remind them that they're my own possession, as it says in Exodus 19. Remind them that I'm the one that freed them from slavery in Egypt, led them in the desert for 40 years to provide a promised land for them, to set them up as a holy nation and a priest of believers, that they would be people that so live my character in this world that people turn. And they say, I want to be a part of that. And they would all come back home. Remind them that's who they are. And remind them the promise that I made with them, that I would be their God and they would be my people. Remind them that promise demands justice and righteousness. Go tell them that. And Amos does it. And so in chapters 3 through 6 of Amos, we get the message that he delivered to Israel and its leaders. And it's harsh. Amos is trying to wake them up from their religious hypocrisy. He's he's trying to show them that they're there in worship, but they aren't interested in loving as God loves. And so their religious observances are actually a sham. Because relationship with God should impact relationship with others, not just where you gather in worship. And the core of this message is Amos chapter 5. That's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. God kind of sets out and he says he actually despises their religious festivals and their assemblies stink, which is a funny thing for God to say and a harsh thing for God to say. But in the Hebrew, the the word stink, it means stink. Like you're stink, like like I can't be around you. He says, I only want to hear the words of your songs because of how you treat people, the indifference with which you treat people. I only want to hear the words of your song. Imagine Dave hearing that. He'd be crushed. God says, you want to know what I want? I'll tell you. I want justice to roll like a river. And I want righteousness like a never-ending stream. That's what I'm about. If that sounds familiar, Martin Luther King Jr. quoted Amos 5, 4 for his I Have a Dream speech. And these two words, justice like a river, righteousness like a mighty stream, these two words are really important biblically. They should be thought of, or could at least be thought of, as twin words. They're often paired in the scriptures. They go together, and it's important to understand them together to understand who we as his people are called to be. So I want to take just a moment to unpack these two words. The word for justice in Hebrew is mishpat. It's a weird-sounding word, but basically that is taking action to counter injustice, to correct injustice. And in the Old Testament... That is most commonly used to describe the taking up of the cause of four groups of people. They're called the quartet of the vulnerable because they're talked about so often, and particularly in the Old Testament, even through the New Testament. Those four, the four vulnerable people groups, widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. That's the quartet of the vulnerable, and God calls his people to take up their cause. Why? Because in pre-modern agrarian society where the Israelites were moving through the world, any amount of of famine or invasion or mild social unrest would lead to starvation or at least the threat of starvation for these folks because they had no social power, no social voice. 
And so the call of God's people from the beginning has been to look around for the most vulnerable among you, the most vulnerable people, because every person I've created, God says, matters to me. I love every single one of them. So look for the vulnerable ones and use whatever power you have to care for those without any. And so for us today, maybe the quartet is different. Maybe it's not. But maybe it's different. But the call remains the same. Take action against injustice. Look out for the vulnerable. That's justice, mishpat. Righteousness, uh, as a Hebrew word, zedekah, is a word referring to right relationships. And if you've been in church, maybe you grew up in the church or you've read some scripture, you've probably heard that word righteousness, and it probably uh, evokes in you uh, moral rightness, like being right in comparison to God's morality, having my morality line up with God's morality, and therefore being in right relationship. And there's a sense in which that is part of this word, zedekah. Uh, yeah, zedekah. Um, but that's like one flower in a, in a bouquet. In the broader sense, this word zedekah means uh, to, to conduct all relationships rightly. Conduct your day-to-day living, person-to-person, God-to-person, rightly. It's a state of equality and rightness. It's what you might say, this is a person who is being just, if you're living rightly. So the call to justice is both to fix what is broken, to punish those who do wrong, and to take up the cause for those that have been treated wrong, the victims, but it's also to live in a way that creates enough space in our lives, and this is important, enough space in our lives to love as God loves, thus rendering this world less in need of fixing. That's what the Bible means by doing justice. And when they're tied together, as these two words are a couple dozen times in the scriptures, as they are here in Amos, you get what we call social justice. That's the definition. This has been God's character. This is God's character. This is what we are supposed to be about. This is what God's people have always supposed to be about, seeking justice and righteousness, not apart from him, and this is really important, not apart from him, but because of him, because of who he is. And this is what being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others produces in the world, and this is something we care a lot about around here at Summit. See, from the outside, things looked really good. God's people had experienced a time of prosperity and wealth and relative safety, and all those are blessings from God, and they would show up in worship, and they would thank him for that, and that is a good thing as well. But that good, that was the focus. They had blinders on to that good and that good alone, and it stood in the way of them seeing anything else. See, safety and prosperity, what they had experienced, the blessing they had received from God, wasn't having the right impact in the world. It wasn't making the right kind of difference. And it isn't that God calls out his people because he hates safety and prosperity. That's not the case. Ultimately, that's what he wants for all people for all time. That's when he sets the world right. That's what it will look like, safety and prosperity for everyone. But the effect of safety and prosperity in our lives in a fallen world oftentimes doesn't produce what it should. See, what is good for them, what what they loved, what's good for us, what we love, sometimes becomes the extent of our focus and it blinds us from seeing the needs of others beyond what benefits us. And so they were experiencing what is good, but they forgot to do good along the way. And so Amos shows up in Bethel and he says, wake up. 
Don't let what is good stand in the way of doing good. And if we don't want to let what is good stand in the way of doing good for us, if we are like, whoa, I, yeah, I'm, I'm hearing that. Maybe I need to wake up a little bit. Maybe I've suffered a bit of indifference here. Maybe I need to wake up. What do I do? Where do I start? Well, Amos tells us. Starting in chapter 5, verse 4, part of this is in your bulletin. I'm going to read a larger section, so if you have a Bible, you can open it or just listen along. This is what the Lord says to Israel. This is what God says to his people. Seek me and live. That's where you start. That's where you always have to start. That's where this always starts. The Talmud, which was an ancient rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament, uh, is an ancient commentary. Uh, setting textual debate aside, says that Moses gave Israel 613 commands. David reduced them to 10. Isaiah reduced them to two. Amos reduces it to one. One thing. Seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live. Don't just seek the blessings of God. Seek God. Seek his character. Seek who he is. This is what the Lord says to Israel. Seek me and live. Don't seek Bethel. Don't go to Gilgal. Do not journey to Beersheba. These are places. Gilgal will surely go into exile and Bethel will be reduced to nothing. Seek the Lord and live. Or he will sweep through the tribes of Joseph like a fire. And it will devour them and Bethel will have no one to quench it. There are those who turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness to the ground. He who made the Pallades and the Orionans, the, the stars themselves who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land. The Lord is his name. With a blinding flash, he destroys the stronghold and brings the fortified city to ruin. There are those who hate the one who upholds justice in the court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and you oppose a tax on their grain. Basically, what that's saying is you don't make things easier for the poor, you make things more difficult for them than they actually has to be for your benefit. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you won't live in them. Though you've planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many are your offenses and how great are your sins. There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the court. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Here's the grace note. There's always a grace note from God. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you just as he says he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. God, through Amos, calls out a people who had prospered. They developed a beautiful society for some. They religiously gathered in worship. They in some ways looked like they were getting it all right. The front yard looked immaculate. And let me be clear, it isn't gathering in worship that Amos is calling out here. Gathering in worship is good and it's important. We need this. We need this type of coming together to focus on what is good and right and true, to be challenged and encouraged to live as we ought, to be refocused and refueled for the week ahead. But I believe if Amos were here today, he would stand up and he would say, this can't be all there is to our worship. It can't be. 
my cousin's done some work uh, helping develop the church and care for the vulnerable in the Dominican Republic, and she was there recently. And the pastor she was with was preaching a sermon in the village, and he asked the question, how do we seek the Lord? How do we become faithful disciples, faithful followers of God? And someone uh, from the congregation uh, yelled out, nosotros amamos, we love. Easy enough, right? That's how we seek the Lord, we, we love. But who do we love? Or maybe the question Amos would ask in response is, who are we supposed to be sure we don't forget to love? There's nothing wrong with being blessed. There's nothing wrong with prosperity. But there is certainly something wrong with indifference to people in need that need your voice. So what I'm not saying here is uh, care less for your family. No, no, no. Be all in. Make it your job to outserve the people in your family. Be all in. And I'm not saying care less about your work, actually. Be 100%. Give everything you've got while you're there. Be the best you can possibly be. Do all things unto the Lord. But what I'm saying is if those become the extent of the affection of our heart, if that's all we have room to love, then we miss out. And so do others. And so the risk that deserves our attention, the 2,800-year-old risk, is the risk of indifference to things in our community, to things in our lives. Not indifference to everything. I don't think that's really a risk. We will find things to love, but indifference to important things, things that deserve our attention because this indifference, this sin of indifference, it wasn't weeded out 2,800 years ago when Amos talked about it. It's still in our heart. We can still turn our back on God by turning our back on our fellow man, and Jesus knew it. That's why he showed up. That's why he gave everything, and that's why, why while he was here in Matthew 25, he gave this example. He says, I was thirsty. You gave me nothing to drink. I was hungry. You gave me no food. I was a stranger. You didn't invite me in. I needed clothes. You didn't clothe me. I was sick, and I was in prison. You didn't look after me. And they'll say, well, when, when was that? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or in need of clothes or sick or in prison, and we didn't care for you? When did that happen? And Jesus said, whenever you didn't do that for the least of these among you, you didn't do it for me. God had Amos go to Bethel, go to Israel, and deliver this message because he knows we're going to stumble at this. And Jesus brings up a similar message because he knows we're going to continue to stumble at it, even though we have his grace in our lives and his spirit inside us. Because even with that, we can make the mistake of taking what is good, our prosperity, our family, even our time in worship, all good things, all gifts from God, and actually make those the object of our worship. We're no longer seeking the Lord. We're just seeking the stuff. We're seeking our way of being. And we begin to protect those things at all costs, and there's no room left to seek the Lord. That's how what is good and what we love can stand in the way of doing good. And we miss out on life. And so the question is, is it just all bad news, right? It's like, okay, there's a mirror held up to my face. Is it just all bad news? Is there anything that I can kind of move through this? Yeah, seek the Lord and live. Because our worship of God, our seeking him, his character, his heart that says, I want to see justice and I want to see righteousness should make a difference in our lives and in the lives of people around us. But we might have to wake up. Is there a place where what is good has begun to stand in the way of doing good for you? 
is the car and, and the house, are those, are those blessings, but the payment of those things doesn't leave any space for generosity. Are the kids that we've been entrusted to care for, are they an absolute blessing, but we've built everything around them and what they want, maybe, and that's left no space to actually teach them to love others? Is there a place where what is good has begun to stand in the way of doing good? Is there a place where we seek the blessings of God, but not the character of God? Is it possible that we are asleep and we need to wake up? And I know for some of you, we've been at this for, you know, 20 minutes or so, and you're like, yeah, this is, this is good and great, and now I know a little bit about Amos, but this isn't a sermon for me. Maybe the guy sitting next to me, or maybe me in a different season, maybe I'm supposed to tuck this in my back pocket for a different season, but uh, what is good standing in the way of doing good? Well, there's nothing good. I mean, not for me, not right now. There's, there's nothing good. This must be for somebody else. Let me challenge you uh, on that thought for just a moment. I was recently reflecting on the life of the man that invited me into ministry. He became my first ministry mentor. His name was Jason. He lived up in Indiana and ended up in Atlanta. He lost uh, a short battle with cancer in the fall. It's terrible. And after his passing, his wife and kids came down just to spend some time, get a little relief. And so we spent a few days together. And one night we were out on the patio. We had a little fire going in the fire pit. And we were just reminiscing about Jason. We are telling Jason stories. And uh, we talked about this season that, that uh, Sophie calls, calls Jason's Cheesecake Days, which is a funny name for a season. But, uh, but he, so here's the deal. He was a pastor. He was brilliant. He was godly. He was talented. He had so much to offer the world around him. But for a season, after he'd been a pastor for 10 years, he had to take a job as a server at Cheesecake Factory to provide for his family. Now, in that season, he could have said, look, I'm a pastor, and I've got so much to offer the world. There are bigger and better things for me to deal with than, than you know, serve up cheesecake or whatever, but he didn't. He chose to see that for him, in that season of life, his way of doing good was humility. He humbly said, I'll do what I need to do to take care of my family. And so he'd work these long shifts at the Cheesecake Factory, and then he'd come home, and he'd love his wife and his kids well and pour into them. And then with whatever margin he had left, it seemed supernatural to me, he would go into uh, the inner city of Atlanta, and he would care for the vulnerable, and he would seek racial reconciliation, and he would help churches come to life, uh, and and he would feed the homeless, and he would care uh, for women who had been traumatized, and, and he was amazing, and that was my pastor. See, your calling in life may be big and it may be bold and it may be good, but humbly caring for who God has given you to love might take you doing something else for a season. You may have to let go of that dream. See, what is good, your dream, your vision for your life, what you love to do vocationally, shouldn't keep you from doing good, caring for those God has given you to love. See, this is a message for all of us. And it's a message for all of us individually, but collectively as well. Like, it's a message for all of us. Seeking the Lord should make a difference, so don't let what is good stand in the way of doing good. That's for all of us. Amos delivered this to all of God's people, to be taken individually, but to be lived collectively. That's why here at Summit, that's a big part of why we've spent so much time talking about and energy put into this this, uh, local service focus of caring for vulnerable children. That's why we're continuing to do this as a family together. 
while we're looking around at the foster system and saying too many good foster families are giving up because it seems hopeless. Let's put care teams around them that can, that can, that can care for them, put an arm around them, bring them a meal, show up, do some, do some babysitting, like actually pour into these kids' lives. Let's help them have hope along the way. That's why we're continuing to invest in these local schools that have so much vulnerability. All kinds of vulnerabilities show up in these local schools. That's why we're doing it. That's why we'll continue to invest deeply in vulnerable children's lives through our partnerships in Africa because we want to jump in together and we want to seek the Lord and we want to live. And I want to be honest as we head toward the close here, uh, and a lot of you guys know this and you've, uh, you've walked with us through this season. It's been a really difficult one. It's been a, it's been a season of loss. It's been really hard for the Abbott family. Um, we lost Jason. We lost Abby's mom, just an incredible person. Uh, we also lost... Uh, the founder and, and director of the orphanage where our youngest, Joe Lee, stayed for the first five years of his life before he came home. This is a man that gave his life every single day, pouring himself out to help families come together. We lost him to cancer as well. It's just been a hard season. And along the way through this hard season, we've never, never really lost sight of the hope we have in Christ. Never really. I mean, we've seen that God is good out there. We've seen that what Jesus has done for us is good, and we're humbled by it, and we need his grace. And so we've found hope in Christ. But being alive, being fully present, being fully engaged, it's been elusive at times. But something that's brought color back to our lives along the way has been this local service focus getting care teams together to, we've got, we've got four now, we're getting ready to do a fifth, getting these care teams around these families, infusing hope into their lives, continuing to meet with and brainstorm and plan for how we can care for students at East River High School. There, there's something about getting outside of yourself and caring for others, about shouting loudly the value of others that brings perspective and hope and connection with God that staying inside yourself simply can't. And so if you find yourself in a place where you're hurting, I know, I know the Abbott family is not the only one in this season. I know that. I've had the conversations. I've had the meetings. I've had the coffees. I know there are others among us that are hurting. Healing, focusing on grieving well and honestly uh, is a good thing. Please don't shortcut that process. But along the way, and let me just say this, possibly for the sake of healing itself, be sure you are creating space to love others along the way. Maybe you walked in and you don't feel blessed and you feel like you can check out of this message altogether. Things are far from what you've asked for, but look, if you're here, if you're breathing, if you're engaging with this at all on any level, you are at least experiencing something of the blessing of God. Seek the Lord and live. For all of us, don't let what is good stand in the way of doing good because the promise is if we seek him, if we seek his love, his character, his justice, his righteousness in this world, we actually find life there. Galatians 6.9 puts it this way, let us not become weary of doing good for at the proper time we reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as you have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of God. See, our personal worship of God should make a difference. 
See, if God makes a difference, if he's the God who makes a difference, then worship of him should make a difference in the world around us through our lives. And it will never happen by accident. It'll never happen by accident. The sin of indifference never disappears without seeking God in our personal life, seeking personal change by his spirit and speaking and seeking community change as we lock arms together and serve others together. So where do we need to wake up? Let's not just be people who make our comfort and our safety and our house and our bank account and our kids and our job and our worship service and our rhythm of life and our next big dream, all we have space to love. You're God's chosen people meant to reflect his character in this world. Don't settle for less. Seek the Lord and live. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, just how, how challenging uh, this, this book of Amos is when we open it up. Thank you uh, more so, though, I believe, for, this, for the fact that we don't have to look at this challenge without hope that we can first turn to you, we can turn to your character and we can see your love and your grace, the type of love and grace that would descend into this world for us in our deepest time of need, that you would notice us in our time of need. And you would give everything you could possibly give so that we could be loved and be near you. Thank you for that. And thank you that that's the character that we are called to reflect in our personal lives and in our, in our community's lives. I pray that we would recognize you're the God who makes a difference. And that we would be compelled by your spirit to continue to make a difference in this world. That we would challenge each other toward love and good deeds as you have called and created us to. That we wouldn't settle for less and that our eyesight wouldn't become so narrow that we only love things that benefit us. I pray that we would be people that repair broken things for the sake of others. That we would be people who shine light in darkness for the sake of others. That we would be people that point others home because they need to see you. And we pray this in the powerful and redemptive name of Jesus. Amen.